You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing how the Watchers appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls and also whether and how the Watchers come up in later Jewish tradition. So just to remind you, we talked about the Watchers, their origin in the Bible. In other words, the story in the Bible that kind of gives birth to the Watchers myth. Then we looked at the Watchers in Enoch, where we really saw different strands of the story being combined. So there are clearly already several traditions regarding the Watchers that are combined in the book of the Watchers that we find in the book of Enoch. And then finally, we looked at the book of Jubilees and what it does with the Watchers story based on the book of Enoch. And not only the Book of Enoch, because we saw that what Jubilees does is that it places the Watchers under the ruler, under the rulership of this really satanic figure, Mastema. So in this episode, we're going to look at the Watchers in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, as I mentioned last time, what we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls does not really reflect this move by the author of Jubilees to place these demonic spirits under Mastema, we see just kind of a way of dealing with the demonic spirits themselves, looking at them very much as anarchic spirits, not spirits that answer to any sort of really, any sort of ruler, with one exception, which I'm, I'm going to discuss. Also very important to remember in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm going to repeat this many times because this is one of the central findings of my book, Evil Within and Without, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, particularly when I say Dead Sea Scrolls right now, I'm talking about sectarian Dead Sea Scrolls. A A word about what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we should just remember that while, of course, everything found at Qumran, one assumes, was read by people at Qumran, not everything was composed by the group at Qumran. What do I mean? Well, obviously, we have, we have biblical books there. Now, were the biblical books composed by the people at Qumran? Of course not. That's obvious. Then we have all the books in between. We have all sorts of, besides books like the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, you know, pieces of Enoch, pieces of Jubilees, um, and other other works that we find at Qumran that we know belong to a larger group of Jews. Besides that, we have works where we have to ask, is this specific to the Qumran group or is it not specific to the Qumran group? And then usually we have to do some kind of terminological analysis and, um, and really kind of conceptual analysis. What do I mean? I mean that there are certain terms that are always used by the sect or that are that kind of show you that now you're reading a sectarian piece of literature. So if we don't see any of those terms, if we see rather these kind of very general terms being used, we're already we already lean to say this is a, a this may have been a document that was important to the group, but was brought in from outside the group. It appealed to a more general group of Jews. Another thing that we do is we look at certain concepts or certain uh, ideas that are very important to the Qumran community. And if those ideas aren't particularly emphasized in this work, and it also doesn't use sectarian terminology, it doesn't use the terms that they usually use, we usually assume that this text belonged to a larger group. Of course, there's no way of really knowing for sure if we don't find it someplace outside of Qumran. 
But coming back to works that are actually sectarian texts, works that are very, very clearly belong to the group, and that's because of their use of sectarian terminology, or even if they're rule books that are central to the group. For example, the Damascus document, or the rule of the community, which are central rule books for the Qumran community. What we find is that when they're talking about free will and determinism, now, I agree with the standard view that they had a very deterministic view of the world in general. In other words, uh, they expressed several times in their, uh, the Qumran community expresses several times in the works that are central to them that it has been decided essentially from the beginning of time by God who was going to be wicked and who was going to be good. Uh, these general camps are are almost are kind of almost on a cosmic level. However, in everyday practice, this is not really the way they expect people to run their lives. What do I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely, they do sometimes in the community. Uh, cast lots to decide what a person's like and what should be done in a certain situation. And that certainly is part of their general deterministic outlook. However, in their rule book specifically, they emphasize that people have free will. Uh, we're going to look at that much more closely when I talk about the idea of the evil inclination and how it plays out in Second Temple literature. But what we're going to see today is that even when, it when we talk about the Watcher's myth, we already see this difference between the rule books, where the Watcher's myth becomes eviscerated in a way. I mean, that the whole point of the Watcher's myth, what we were seeing before, that it's explaining evil, human evil, cosmic evil, that whole point is kind of sucked out of it. And it's brought instead in the Damascus document as an example of angels exercising their free will for bad. And we're going to see that in the text very soon. Um, whereas in prayers and in general, in Qumran prayers, that's where determinism really comes out. And we're going to say this, we see in prayers, not exactly determinism, but this idea of there are these demonic forces inside me. They're trying to make me sin. Oh God, help me. Okay, and we're going to see this idea inside. Now, Again, this difference between rule books and prayer is not just found in sectarian documents because frequently in prayer, and I'm, I'm thinking of even much later Jewish prayer, there's an expression because one is standing opposite, one is standing in meeting with God, as it were, there is a feeling of helplessness. There's a feeling of... Um, uh, Carol Newsom, when she talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the feeling of prayer in the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically in the Hodayot, uh, talks about the masochistic sublime. This idea of being lifted out of yourself, but at the same time realizing just how tiny you are compared to God and how helpless you are. So, of course... Of course, this comes out when we talk about things like the desire to sin, where there's a natural tendency in prayer to say, oh, God, please help me. I can't do it alone. Whereas in the introductions to the rule books, it says, yeah, buddy, you know, you're joining the group. So you are kind of doing it alone, right? I mean, it's up to you to keep the rules and not sin. And so now let's look at that inside and let's see how that plays out specifically with how the Watcher's myth appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I'm going to start 
with the way the Watcher's myth is retold, very briefly, in the Damascus document. Now, a little bit about the Damascus document before we begin. The Damascus document is one of the major rule books of the community, apparently. We have fragments of the Damascus document from Cave 4, which is in certain ways the most important of the Qumran caves and also located right next to the Qumran site. But we knew about it long before the Qumran discoveries were made because it was discovered in the Geniza, in the Cairo Geniza. So it was in the Cairo, found in the Cairo Geniza in medieval copies. So how did the Damascus document make its way to medieval copies found in the Cairo Geniza? It's very possible that Jews of the period actually discovered some scrolls on their own. And then as these were ancient Hebrew scrolls, they clearly had a religious significance and then they were copied over, perhaps even by Karaite scribes. There was a very large Karaite community in Cairo in the 11th century. But regardless of the fact that whoever originally found the ancient copy of the Damascus document may have felt that it had religious significance and the scribes who copied it over presumably also felt that way. It didn't really have any sort of continuation in the Jewish tradition. So I'm going to start from relatively the beginning of the Damascus document, column two, line 14, and continuing into column three. And this is the introduction to the rule book. This is, it's talking about joining the community, essentially. Um, and now, O sons, hearken to me, and I will uncover your eyes so you may see and understand the works of God and choose that which he wants and despise that which he hates to walk perfectly in all his ways and not to go about in the thoughts of an inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes. Again, we're going to come back to this, obviously, when we talk about the evil inclination. For many have strayed due to them, due to them meaning due to the inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes. Mighty men of valor have stumbled due to them from their earliest times and until today. Walking after the stubbornness of their hearts, the watchers of heaven fell. I'm going to repeat that. Walking after the stubbornness of their hearts, the watchers of heaven fell. In other words, these are the first creatures to fall because of something like an evil inclination. They were held by it, for they did not keep God's commandments, and so too their sons, who were as high as lofty cedars and whose bodies were like mountains. In other words, they were sinners, and their sons, the giants, were sinners. For all flesh which was on dry land fell, for they died and were as if they had not been. For they had done their own will and had not kept the commandments of their maker until his wrath was kindled against them. Now, what is happening in this retelling of the Watchers' story? The Watchers have been transformed simply into the first sinners. They and their sons, the giants, are the first sinners and are therefore completely destroyed. It sounds like they were completely destroyed in the flood with all flesh. It says, for all flesh which was on dry land fell. However, that's it. That's it. They're over. And it continues the history of sinners continues it continues that it continues through the sons of noah the sons of noah strayed abraham did not stray he did not walk in it namely the the thoughts of an inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes and then the first ones who entered the covenant in other words the first israelites who got the torah became guilty through it 
and they chose their own will and strayed after the stubbornness of their heart. So in this retelling, which again is in the beginning of the Damascus document, which is a rule book, there's an understanding of the Watchers, there's a knowledge of the Watcher story, but the Watcher story is retold in a way to simply emphasize that you have free will and it is your choice. You can follow your own will or you can listen to God. And the fact that you have an evil will is no excuse because you know it's evil. So if your will wants something and the commandments say another thing, you have to follow the commandments. Like the Watchers should have followed the commandments and they didn't, so they're dead. It's a pretty clear message. Moving along, however, to prayers that we found at Qumran and prayers that seem to be, again, sectarian prayers, prayers that belong to the community, there is absolutely an acknowledgement that the spirits that have come out of the descendants of the Watchers are actually an internal threat. Let's look at how this plays out in a specific prayer that's called Songs of the Sage. Now, the Songs of the Sage, which if you're going to look them up according to their number of the scroll at Qumran, in this case, it's 510 to 511. It would be 4Q, 510 to 511, 4 for the number of the cave, cave 4. Q, Qumran, 510 to 511, is a set of prayers that is meant to be said by the Maskil, who is apparently an official of the Dead Sea community. It is meant to be said as protection against evil forces. When this prayer turns to God for help against the desire to sin, it refers specifically to the descendants of the Watchers. So I'll read a couple of sections of this now. Okay, this is very fragmentary, so we're missing a lot of words. His knowledge, namely God's knowledge, he put in my heart the praises of his righteousness. And by his mouth, by God's mouth, he frightens all the spirits of the bastards to subdue impurity. For in the innards of my flesh is the foundation of, clearly something bad, my body, in my body are battles. The statutes of God are in my heart and I profit for all the wonders of man. What is going on here? The speaker is calling on God to frighten the spirits of the bastards. Okay. In my body are battles. What are the battles between the bastard spirits on the one hand and the statutes of God that are in my heart? I've mentioned this before, this basic idea that the law always fights sin. And in this case, it's fighting it in an almost physical way because you've got demons in your heart and you've got... You've got rather demonic spirits in your heart and you have the laws of God in your heart. And who are these demonic spirits? They are bastard spirits. What are bastards? And I've said this before, but I will repeat it. The bastards are, bastards in Jewish tradition and in Jewish law are not children born out of wedlock. They are children born out of an illicit union, a union that is not allowed so in this case, the union between angels and humans, it's, and it's, it is an illicit union, the children are automatically bastards. They're already called bastards in the Book of the Watchers in First Enoch. In chapter 10, verse 9, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates. What's interesting is that in both the Greek that we have of the Book of the Watchers and in the, in the Ethiopic of the Book of the Watchers, the word bastards is actually a transcription of the Aramaic mamzera. So 
we don't actually have a Greek word bastards or an Ethiopic word bastards used in that verse. In both cases, they attempt to transcribe the Aramaic word mam, the Aramaic word that normally I would say in Hebrew, mamzer. But they're looking, of course, at Aramaic. Mamzer, I remember that Enoch was written in Aramaic. And both of the translations kind of recognize that this is a term that's almost technical. And so they don't translate it, they transcribe it. And we have the same term showing up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these bastard spirits, right? These bastard spirits are in me and I need God's help, even though they're fighting with the laws of God that are inside me, I'm praying to God for help. So let's continue with more from the Songs of the Sage. Remember the sage in this case is the masculine. And I, the masculine, proclaim his glorious splendor so as to frighten and to terrify all the spirits of the destructive angels, bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, howlers, and those who strike suddenly to lead a spirit of understanding astray. In other words, here I am, I'm a spirit of understanding, I'm a good guy. But here are all these demonic spirits that are trying to lead me astray. And here he has a whole string of spirits, right? We're not just the bastard spirits, which are the watcher's descendants, but also demons, howlers, and Lilith. These different demons, uh, particularly the howlers, the ochim, that's from Isaiah 13, 21. And Lilith is also from Isaiah 34, 14. Now, a word about Lilith, this is way before we have the stories of Lilith being Adam's first wife. At this point, Lilith is just another demon. It's not, it's not or demonic force even. It's not clear what Lilith is exactly. And even if you go later on in the Talmud, while there are a few references to Lilith, it's not really clear what she is, what her kind of story is. We only get the story of Lilith as being the first wife of Adam and everything that was really built on later in a book called The Alphabet of Ben Sirah, which was 8th to 10th century CE. In other words, early Middle Ages. And The Alphabet of Ben Sirah is a satirical work. Actually, satirical and scatological. Scatological meaning uh, it employs a bathroom and sexual humor. So I, I wouldn't go too far in terms of talking about Lilith as this ancient demonic figure. The name is certainly ancient um, and there is some kind of idea of an ancient force, but the whole story of Lilith as being a spe specifically kind of the scorned first wife of Adam because she was a little too, um, shall we say, aggressive, uh, that's really late and also kind of a joke. So let's go back actually <laughs> to our Songs of the Sage. Okay, so again, and I, the masculine, proclaim his glorious splendor so as to frighten and to terrify all the spirits of the destructive, destructive angels, bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, howlers, and, and those who strike suddenly to lead a spirit of understanding astray and to make their heart and their something, we're missing the word, desolate during the present dominion of wickedness and predetermined time of afflictions for the children of light by the guilt of the ages of those smitten by iniquity. Okay, this is a very important point. On the one hand, the masquil is supposed to be kind of calling on the protection of God 
from these different demonic spirits that are trying to clearly influence him to sin, to lead a spirit of understanding astray. The spirit of understanding being his spirit, the righteous spirit that is him, this person, right? But they're trying to lead him astray. When are they able to lead him astray? They're able to try to lead him astray during the present dominion of wickedness and predetermined time of afflictions, for the children of light. This was a basic belief of the Qumran community that during the present age, it's something they frequently called Memshelet Blial, the dominion of Blial. This is a time when Blial, who is their kind of uber demon, right? They're, he's their satanic figure of choice, right? He's given permission by God, essentially, to have some kind of rule during this period. And here, the maskil is actually talking about all these spirits that are able to kind of roam free during the present period. Now, we might ask, why in the world are they allowed to roam free? And this is another solution to the problem that we saw last week dealt with by the author of Jubilees in a different way, where if you have a deep belief that there are these demonic spirits that are influencing you, or that there are these demonic spirits that are causing evil. You've removed that responsibility from God by one degree, but it's still up to God, right? Why isn't God taking control? So in the book of Jubilees, there is a kind of control. There's control by Mastema, who is in the divine court. And Mastema needs these demons in order to punish the wicked somehow. Here, there's kind of a divine plan involved. That's the, that's the solution that the Camorna community uses. There's a divine plan in which this is a period of wickedness where there's a, there's a certain amount of wickedness allowed, uh, rather a certain amount of demonic uh, ability allowed, and it's going to end in this tremendous battle between good and evil where Blial and all his minions are going to be defeated and destroyed along with their human followers. So this can kind of explain for the community member why they are oppressed. And there is absolutely a feeling that comes out in the Qumran community texts that they do feel oppressed. They feel oppressed. They feel that while they are doing their utmost to follow God's will, no one else seems to recognize it or realize that what they're doing is correct and that everyone else is wrong. No one, no one recognizes that. How can that be? So one of their explanations is that the present period is a period of the dominion of evil, or more specifically, the dominion of Blial, where this kind of misleading by spirits can happen relatively easily. We're going to discuss this a little bit more in the future when we talk about Blial and Blial's importance and use in the Dead Sea Scrolls and for the Qumran community. So what did we see? in the Songs of the Sage. What did we see that the Maskil was doing? These are prayers that are essentially not prayers. They're more of an incantation because he's calling on the fear of God to protect him from these spirits, these demonic spirits that are influencing to sin that clearly include the bastard spirits who we already know are the Watcher's descendants. We see a similar... Now, while we saw that in the passage I just read to you, the watcher spirits, the watcher's descendants, rather, were lumped together with all the other 
with all the other demonic influences. Uh, later on, there's a specific call on the fear of God to protect the speaker from the spirits of the bastard specifically. And I practice the fear of God. I'm reading from 4Q511, fragment 35, lines 6 to 8. And I practice the fear of God through the periods of my generations to exalt the name, and here we're missing a few words, by his strength, all the spirits of the bastards, to subdue them by his fear. And here we see that specifically the Watcher's descendants are addressed, and apparently they are a special source of fear. If we're talking about the idea of demonic spirits influencing one to sin, we find this also in another sectarian uh, text, really a prayer, uh, called 4Q Incantation, even though really it's more of a prayer than the Songs of the Sage. Songs of the Sage are closer to an incantation, calling on the fear of God to be upon these demons, while 4Q Incantation is actually a prayer where there's an addressing of God directly. Um, it's 4Q444, if you want to look it up. And here we don't see the Watcher specifically addressed, simply demonic spirits. And as for me, because of my fearing God, with his true knowledge, he opened my mouth. And from his Holy Spirit, something, truth to all these, they became spirits of controversy in my bodily structure. And then laws of, and we are not clear, in innards of flesh, and a spirit of knowledge and understanding, truth and righteousness God put in my heart. And strengthen yourself by the laws of God, and in order to fight against the spirits of wickedness. Here we don't see a specific reference to the Watchers. However, we do see reference to demons, and again to that idea that the law, the laws of God are within me, and they fight against demonic influence. Now, these Qumran texts have dealt with the the descendants of the Watchers as internal spirits. In other words, why are they threatening? They're threatening because they're inside me and they're influencing me to sin. But we do have an incantation which addresses these this sort of spirit as a completely external demon. And I'm talking about the incantation found at uh, 11Q11. So that means that it's Cave 11, Scroll number 11, found at Qumran. 11Q Apocryphal Psalms is what this scroll is called. But it's actually this is actually a Qumran incantation. And it says, When he comes to you in the night, you will say to him, Who are you, O offspring of man and of the seed of the holy ones? Your face is a face of delusion, and your horns are horns of illusion. You are darkness and not light, injustice and not justice. By the way, your horns or horns of illusion could also be referring to rays of light, right? Because it's karnecha karnecha chalom and as we know that word karen it can mean a horn or it can mean rays of light so perhaps it appears as an angel with rays of light coming out of it so your face is a face of delusion and your horns or your rays of light are rays of illusion you are darkness and not light injustice and not justice 
So here, again, this descent, this offspring of man and of the seed of the holy ones is clearly referring to the watcher's descendants, and it is referring to it as an external demon. This is a very fragmentary text, so it's very hard to know exactly what the demon is thought of as doing, but since it's an external demon, one can assume that the assumption is it is coming to cause physical harm, and you're supposed to use this incantation to protect yourself against it, but perhaps also to protect yourself from being misled by it because it seems to be masquerading as perhaps an angel because you're saying you're um, you are darkness and not light your face is a face of delusion and your rays are rays of illusion so I'm not fooled by you you're just a fake so there we have it that's pretty much what we have of the watchers and the watchers descendants it at Qumran we have the reference in the Damascus document where the Watchers are really essentially used as an example of the first creatures who decide to sin. We have the references in the Songs of the Sage, where the Watchers' descendants have become spirits that battle inside the speaker, in this case the Maskil, trying to get him to sin. And finally, we have 11Q11, 11Q Apocryphal Psalms, where some creature that is a descendant of the Watchers means the speaker harm, apparently, and the speaker is using an incantation against it. We do have some references to angels of Mastema, and that's particularly in a scroll called Apocryphon of Jeremiah. In the Apocryphon of Jeremiah, there is... A, by the way, names at Qumran are sometimes relatively accurate and sometimes relatively not. Uh, sometimes they're somewhat misleading because usually the names of scrolls were given very early on when people were not quite clear what was in them when they hadn't been fully deciphered. So some names are spot on, some names are not. Uh, at any rate, uh, in the Apocryphon of Je Jeremiah, there is a reference to angels of mastemot, angels of hostilities. And perhaps it's referring to the idea that these watcher spirits were then ruled by Mastema, and then they become angels of hostilities. So uh, I'll read a, few, a couple of passages, very fragmentary. And I shall lay waste the land, and I shall drive men away, and I shall abandon something. That's what God is saying is going to happen. The land in the hand of the angels of Mastemot, God is saying, I'm going to abandon the land in the hand of these spirits. And again, that's that idea at Qumran that there's this age where essentially demons can run free. And here's another passage. But I shall leave among them refugees so that they should not be annihilated in my wrath. And when my face is hidden from them, in other words, when God's face is hidden, and the angels of Mastemot will rule over them. So here we have, again, this idea of that there's an age in which there's demonic rule because God is hiding his face from the Jewish people. And in fact, the dominion of Blial is mentioned in the same scroll as a time when these angels of hostilities, Malachi HaMastemot, will rule, um, with the result that the non-believing Jews will not know and will not understand that I, God, was angry with them because of their trespass. So again, we here we have this kind of conjunction of the rule of Blial, this, this age of dominion of Blial, with these angels of hostilities, which may or may not be referring to the descendants of the Watchers that have become subjugated to Mastema, or it may simply be another way of 
combining the idea of Jubilees, where the angel of Mastema is the main bad guy, and Qumran belief, where Blial is the main bad guy. And here we're kind of putting them all into the same system, where we have angels of hostilities functioning during the dominion of Blial in the present age. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what about in later Jewish tradition? I don't know if you're really thinking that, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. So do the watchers show up in later Jewish tradition? And the answer is, to a certain extent, in much later Jewish tradition. We really see them showing up again in the Talmudic period in two possible Talmudic references, and then in the early Middle Ages. So possibly the earliest reference we have to the Watcher's myth in the Jewish tradition is in the Babylonian Talmud. And I say possibly, and you'll understand why as soon as I read the references. I'm going to start with the tractate Nida, page 61a. And in Nida, they are discussing two characters, two biblical characters, Og, the king of the Bashan, and Sihon, the king of Edmari. And both of them are become legendary, almost legendary figures in Midrash, both of them of giant proportions. And now, of course, the reason that Og is given giant proportions is fairly clear, because in Dvarim, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 3, verse 11, it talks about how huge his bed was. So it's understandable that, of course, Og is supposed to be a giant, but Sihon is also supposed to be a giant. And in this and in this section of the Talmud, it says Sihon and Og were brothers. For the master stated, Amarmar, Sihon and Og were the sons of Achiah, the son of Shemchazai. Who is Shemchazai? Remember Shemichaza from Enoch? Shemichaza, who's supposed to be one of the watchers. They mate with human women and have giants. Sihon and Og here are both being related to descendants of those giants. They were the children of one of the giants who was the child of Shemchazai. Now, Shemchazai is not in the biblical account, of course. We can only understand this line in the Talmud if we know the story about Shemichazai being one of the watchers. Another place where we possibly find this story in the Talmud is, of course, in Yoma 67b. So in Yoma 67b, we're discussing Azazel. If you all remember the scapegoat, who is a major part of the ritual of Yom Kippur as it's presented in the Bible, you have a goat that is sacrificed to God and a goat that goes to Azazel. And that goat is essentially sent out into the desert. And the question is, what is this, what is this goat supposed to be doing? What's it for? So we read in the Talmud, Tana Debe Rabbi Ishmael, it's studied in the tradition of Rabbi Ishmael, Azazel Shemechaper Amaaseh Uzav Azael. Azazel that atones for the action of Uza and Azael. That's it. That's all it says, period. No explanation. Azazel that atones for the action of Uza and Azael. As we all recall from what we heard about in Enoch, Asael was another one of those watchers that sinned. Again, not in the biblical account, but in the Second Temple tradition, Azael 
was one of the sinning was one of the sinning watchers. And in fact, Rashi, the medieval commentator on this phrase says, Uzzah v'azael, he has to explain, because the Talmud doesn't explain who Uzzah and Azael are. He says, Malachei Chabalah she'yardu la'aretz b'imei na'ama achot tuvalkayim. They are the angels of destruction that came to earth in the time of Naama, the sister of Tuvalkayim. About them it says, and the sons of God saw the sons of man. In other words, Rashi explains, this sacrifice atones for sins involving sexual misdeeds. What does this mean? Because Uzzah and Azael were the sons of God who sinned with the daughters of man, this, this sacrifice for Azazel, as it were, is meant to atone for sexual sins. So these are the two references we have to the story in the Talmud. And in both cases, their references without much explanation, we're just kind of supposed to know. We're supposed to know who Shemi Chaza is. We're supposed to know who Uzu and Azael are. And what's interesting, of course, is that Rashi uh, right away knows who Uzu and Azael are. He right away connects them to the verse we had in, in uh, Genesis 6. Now, of course, Asael in Enoch was almost certainly himself drawn from Azazel in, in, in Leviticus. So we're kind of coming full circle here. Where else do we find the story in Jewish tradition? Well, we find it in the Targum Yerushalmi, or what we actually, we usually call it Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, Pseudo-Yonatan. Why? Because in most... Um, Orthodox Bibles with commentaries, this Targum on the Torah is called Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. But it's not Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. Uh, just a few words for those of you who are um, who are used to the different Targumim and are used to learning them. Targum Yonatan ben Uziel in Navi, in the Prophets, is the actual Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. What is called Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, on the Torah, on the five books of Moses, that Targum, that's a printer's mistake. That's a printer's error. It's not Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. It's not even connected to Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. It doesn't even have the same history as Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. Targum, what we're going to call from now on pseudo-Jonathan or pseudo-Yonatan, in other words, the, it's falsely attributed to Yonatan, that Targum comes from the land of Israel. It dates to about the end of the 8th century. And it has, oh, <laughs> I didn't explain what a Targum is. A Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Bible that was frequently read in synagogues where people understood Aramaic and not Hebrew necessarily. And so from very early on, it was common to read the biblical verse with its Aramaic Targum. And so we have several different Targumim. Some of them are very literal, like Targum Onkelos. It's mostly literal. And some of them add later traditions from Midrash, like Targum Yonatan and Targum, like Targum we call Pseudo-Yonatan, and the actual Targum Yonatan ben Uziel in On the Prophets but particularly Targum Pseudo-Yonatan on the uh, five books of Moses, on the Pentateuch. So what does Targum Pseudo-Yonatan say 
about uh, about our verses in Genesis, in Genesis 6. Well, Targum Pseudo-Yonatan is clearly familiar with the story of the Watchers because when he's explaining the line, Hanifilim hayuva aretz bayamim hahem, and the Nifilim were on the earth or on the land in those days, he says, Shem uziel hinun nifilin min shmaya v'havo ha'inun. Shem and Uziel were, had fallen from heaven and were on the land in those days. Who were the Nephilim, those who fell from heaven, namely Shem and Uziel? They are the watchers. They fell from heaven. They're the Nephilim, and they're the ones who sinned with the human women, apparently. So again, we have a, a Jew in the 8th century who is familiar with the story of the Watchers and knows the names Shemachazai and Uziel, and that they are connected to this story. Now we have a more significant reference to the Watchers story in a late Midrash called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, this Midrash is really late. It's 8th, 9th century CE, so it's a little later than the Targum we just mentioned, which itself is later than the Babylonian Talmud, if we assume that the Babylonian Talmud is 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 edited around, let's say, 6th century. And Pirkei de Rabeliezer, apparently the author had access to a lot of what we call pseudepigrapha because he retells a lot of stories that we know in their, in their forms in, for example, in Enoch and Jubilees. So he retells the story of the Watchers there. And what's interesting is that then the Ramban Nachmanides, who's a medieval commentator, actually cites Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer in his commentary on Genesis 6, saying this really explains what, what happened and what we're talking about here. In other words, this really is talking about the Watcher story. So there you have it. That's how the Watcher story kind of echoes a bit in Jewish tradition. Notice the very large gaps we have. Qumran is destroyed around the same time Jerusalem is destroyed following the Great Revolt. So you don't have anything after 70 CE. Then the next time we have a reference to the Watcher story, and they're very vague references, is in the Talmud, which is redacted about 6th century, some say even later. Then we have the Targum in the 8th century, Pirkei de Arielezer in the 9th century, and then it makes its way back into the medieval commentaries. And we saw that Rashi, a medieval commentator, is commenting on one of those previous Talmudic passages and connecting it very clearly to the Watcher story. So what have we seen in this episode? We've seen that at Qumran, we clearly have an idea of the Watcher's descendants, both as spirits that can be inside a person and trying to influence them to sin, in which case they're battling with the laws within the person, and the person can call out to God or to use the fear of God against these demonic spirits, and even that these spirits are addressed as external spirits to the person that are somehow uh, that somehow have kind of appearances of deceit. We also saw that there's an idea, Qumran, that demonic spirits are allowed a certain amount of freedom during the present period of evil, and that that's a way of dealing with the presence of evil in the world while still believing in the goodness of God, even though it still presents clearly certain problems. 
And finally, we saw how the Watcher's story does have certain echoes in Jewish tradition and does seem to be at the ba- in the background, particularly of two Talmudic passages that which would be almost impossible to understand if we didn't have this story in the background. So thank you for listening. In my next episode, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from sin and evil. I want to discuss the meaning of scripture and the meaning of canon or what were the holy books in the Second Temple period because these questions are coming up again and again. And and when I discuss these books with people, they ask certain questions that make me realize that there are certain things that I've taken for granted as someone who's worked with these books for a very long time. And it's very important in understanding the biblical books and how they're being used and perceived in the Second Temple period when people are writing these other books based on biblical literature. So I'm going to take an episode and really discuss scripture and canon in the Second Temple period. So for this, I need your help. If you have questions about this issue, please write me by commenting on this page on my blog, namely this episode of the podcast, or you can comment on the Facebook page for this podcast and site, the Understanding Sin and Evil Facebook page. If you could post on it, post your question about scripture in the Second Temple period, and I will try to address it in my next episode. In general, I love your comments, and I just love hearing from you guys. So please continue commenting and asking your questions, either through the Facebook page or on my blog. Thank you, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.